Well, hello, hello, everybody. Welcome to BCA. I don't know if I would say the nation, but at least at this local address, I would hope I'm the best youth pastor here for us. Um, Everybody, it is so awesome to have the opportunity to bring the word. It's always a privilege and honor to be able to serve the youth of our church, of this community, of this county, and this state, and that sort of a thing. But also, it is such a privilege to be able to bring the word today as we are looking at the word of God. You know, every single time we gather together and we have a chance to be able to look at the word, I always just want to remind people, my hope is that you don't leave here just having heard some good thoughts and Caleb opinions and that sort of a thing. I hope that as we look at the word of God, you're able to leave knowing more about how Jesus calls us to represent him to the world around us. And so that is my hope. That is my prayer. And when we dive into the word of God, I am always just a little... Um, aghast, I don't know the right word for it, I'm a little thrown off by the audacity of the statement, because it is such a great statement. It's the idea that when we open the Bible, it's not just a book that was compiled over a bunch of years ago by some random people, but that we actually believe it is the living word of God. And so as we look into scripture today, my hope for you is that you hear it just as that, not just as good moral lessons, lessons not just good as, as sound teachings and things like that, but you hear it as the living word of God wanting to speak to you today. And so with that, my hope is to get out of the way my hope is that as I'm speaking, I'm just communicating what the Bible has to say and you're able to hear and receive today. Does that sound like a good plan to this morning? Yeah. All right. Well, I'm going to pray for us and we're going to dive into the Word of God. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, we just thank you for the chance we have to be together, that we get to gather in this place, Lord, at 10 a.m. on a Sunday afternoon. We just pray that you go ahead of us. Help me to be able to communicate clearly, but help all of us to have hearts that are prepared, hearts that are ready, and that, Lord, we're not just hearing a lesson this morning, but we are hearing the Word of God. So speak to us, Lord. We are listening and we want to receive. So God, we thank you for today. In your holy name, everybody said, Amen, amen, amen. You see, Pastor Rob already mentioned it, but for the last few weeks, we've been kicking off a brand new collection of talks we've been doing called Love Fiercely. And within this series, we have been trying to define loving fiercely as the intense and purposeful act of affection. This idea that love is not just a fleeting emotion. It's not just when you see somebody and you think they're attractive or cute, or you end up having somebody you want to date or something like that, or even somebody you marry. It's not just this emotion that we feel, but it is an action that we are pursuing after, and we are doing so with an amount of, of furious nature that we are wanting to be able to get after it. We're wanting to love in a way that is real and tangible and action-packed and action-filled. And so with this in this series, usually we're talking about marriages and family and parenting and things like that, which are great and amazing things, and we've been covering that for quite a while. But today, we want to broaden the scope. We want to zoom out a little bit. And we want to look at the community around us. Now, today as we're speaking in this message, there's a reality, there's two kinds of community. There, there's chosen community, which would be like this room. You chose to be here today. You showed up because hopefully you're like, hey, I like this place. I like these people. I want to hear the word and I want to worship alongside them. That is a good and great thing and that sort of a deal. That's a chosen community, which really quick, if you've chosen to be a part of this community, you're new to this community, show up to explore after this if you haven't been able to so far yet because we want to figure out how we can invest in you more and find areas that you can invest into this community more and that sort of a thing. But this is chosen. You've chosen to be here. There's also placed community. The reality that Bethany Christian Assembly is placed in Everett, Washington, in Snohomish County, in Washington State, in the United States of America, in this known world, in that sort of a deal. We've been placed here. That is the community we want to talk about today. How do we love the community that we were not necessarily choosing to be a part of, but we were placed within? You see, within this, we see this idea of community and why it matters in the church so much ingrained in Scripture. It's ingrained in Scripture from the very beginning. You see, when we look in Genesis chapters 1 through 3, it speaks of God creating everything. It talks about him creating the animals and the world and the universe, all these things, and eventually creating people. And after everything that he creates, he ends up saying it's good. 
He's saying, this is good, this is good, this is good. But there was one thing that he said, it is not good. He said, it is not good for man to be alone. And so he looked and he went to Adam and he ends up then creating Eve. And in that moment, he creates a helper, somebody to be alongside him. But more importantly, he created a community. He looked and said, I see something that is wrong. I'm going to create community for you. That you weren't meant to go through this life alone. You you see, this idea of community is not just embodied in scripture, but it's honestly embodied in some of the smallest of us. I want you to think about like a kindergartner for just a moment. Their first day of school, they go to school, they show up, they go out to the playground, and ultimately, let's say you're picking them up from school that first day. When you pick them up, they get in the car, and there's such an amazing first few words I feel like you can hear in that moment, and it's this. It's, hey, mom, dad, I made a friend today. It's this idea that they look and they say, I made a friend. I got some community. Somebody's in my corner. Somebody wanted to, they wanted to play kickball with me today. There's this internal need that's being met. Why are we all excited when we make a friend? Because God looked at us and said, guess what? You were created for community. You're supposed to have people around us. And when that need is met, we're overjoyed. We're excited about it. It's a great moment. You see, this is also embodied, though, in the reality that over the last few years, we have seen the after effects of people not being in community. We, we look around the world after these last few years, and there's a reality there's a major problem of people feeling isolated and feeling lonely and feeling like they don't have people in their corner. Why? Because they've been separated from community. That core need was no longer being met. They were actually told that it was not going to be good for them, and now they're having to figure out, how do I get back into community? How do I get people around me? How do I see this happen? So this desire of community, it's important. It's in Scripture. It's in us. Now, how are we supposed to operate within it? How are we supposed to operate within community? We can understand it's important, but we have to see what's it supposed to look like. And during this series, we've been going through 1 Corinthians 13. And within this, there's a number of the verses that speak to amazing aspects of love. But one of the verses in particular, I feel like it just speaks so directly to how we view our communities. And it's 1 Corinthians 13, 5. It says this. It says, it, speaking of love, does not dishonor others. It is not self-seeking. It is not easily angered. It keeps no records of wrong. You know, when we look at a community, if you and I were to walk out of this room, and even maybe with you showing up to church today, oftentimes we choose a community, well, because it benefits us a little bit. We look at the community, we say, hey, I am receiving something out of this. We might say, hey, I want to be there because it keeps us happy. I show up to this community and I'm feeling good. I'm feeling poured into And the other thing I think oftentimes is it's fair to us. We feel like it's a fair deal. We feel like we're getting invested in and we're investing out. We're having this go back and forth, this sort of a thing. But there's a reality that when we view community purely through that kind of a lens, that it has to be self-serving, it has to be looking to us, we are looking at 1 Corinthians 13, 5 and saying, well, this does not apply to the communities I'm within. We're looking and we are saying, no, for me to love a community, it better not dishonor me. We're looking at a community and we were saying, for me to love it, well, it better be a little self-seeking. It better have some benefits for me. I better be signing up for something that's going to really build me up. We look to it and we end up saying, it better not make me angry or else I'm not going to choose to be around it. And we look at it oftentimes and man, do we keep a record of wrongs for community oftentimes. We look around and we look to it and we have this set of standards for it. But today I think there's a reality that within this tension that we live in, this life that we are living through, and this sort of a thing, there is a tension that rises up with community. In the fact that we do not want to have community hurt us or harm us or that sort of a thing, and with that, our love will go based off of how it treats us. 
And so today, I want to identify a tension point that we have within this, and it's this idea that when we are trying to love our community and love the world, it's oftentimes that while we're trying to love it, we will love it until it feels like it hit us in the gut. We'll love it until we feel like the world just keeps looking at us and it's hit after hit of saying, guess what, I don't value you. I don't care about the Jesus you serve. I don't care about the way you wanted to try to talk to me. I don't care that you reached out. I don't care about the way you think and this sort of a thing. And we look at the world and we just start to say, you're the enemy. I mean, imagine this. If you were to walk outside and you were to get hit, first thought, who hit me? You want to identify the enemy. You want to identify what's going on, and oftentimes when we are encountering a community and we're encountering the world around us, if it feels like the world around us has hit us, we look and we want to identify the enemy, and we identify it as the person. We identify it as the people around us. But but can I tell you that if we look into Scripture, we see that it says this is not the case. This is not the case. In Ephesians 6.12, it says, For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. You see, when we are trying to love our community at large, the people around us, it's very easy to look to the person as the enemy. And we start to forget the fact that there is something behind that is really trying to be the enemy. That we walk wanting to say we have the light of Christ, the light of Jesus, and if somebody is walking in the dark, it's not the person that's the problem, it's the darkness around them that is. We're trying to show them the light, reveal them the light, and so we have to stop identifying them as the enemy. And can I just say, whether or not they disagree on policy, politics, views of the world, and anything that would seek to divide us, those things we end up identifying the person as the enemy. But the true enemy is the accuser, is the devil, is the one who is wanting to be able to coerce people away from Christ, to separate us from relationship. You see, within this, this idea of people not being the enemy, I think it's embodied so, so well by the words of Jesus, fitting that he would be the one that would identify this well. You see, Jesus goes, and in a time of ministry, he's ministering to many, many people, and he ends up having a Jewish lawyer approach him. And he walks up, and the lawyer's actually trying to figure out, within the law of Scripture, he looks and he says, Jesus, trying to kind of test him a little bit. He's like, hey, would you have passed the Jewish bar? That kind of an idea. He looks and he says, hey, what is the greatest commandment? What is the greatest commandment in all of Scripture? So Jesus looks and he replies. He says in Mark 12, 29 to 31, he says this, the most important one, answered Jesus, is this, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and with all your strength. See, he could have stopped there, but then he goes on for another one. He says, the second is this. You didn't ask for it, but let me tell you the second one. Love your neighbor as yourself. There's no commandment greater than these. I think Jesus looked and said, I'm going to answer the second one because he's like, guess what? That's the one you don't want to look at today. You're okay if I look at you and say, love God. We're all good with that. But now I'm going to look at you and say love people. And that can be a little bit more difficult. See, he looks at him and he says this. And within this moment, can I just tell you, oftentimes I think we look at the great commandment and we make it the holy recommendation. It's kind of like somebody looks at you and say, hey, it'd be good to like work out five days a week. And you're like, yeah, it's like a recommendation. It's all good. Like if I don't, I can still do some things to supplement it. That sort of a deal. We look at Jesus oftentimes when he says love your neighbor and we say, I'll do my best. It's the greatest commandment. If you want to love God, you love people. And the reality is, is after this moment of him telling him the greatest commandment, the guy looks and he tries to say, hey, well, who's my neighbor? Like, he's like, come on, man. We're trying to figure this out. Who's my neighbor? 
And Jesus responds with a story, with a parable, and at the end of it, he looks and he says, everybody's your neighbor. Actually, to paraphrase a bit, honestly, I think Jesus is looking and he's saying, the question is not, who is your neighbor? The question should be a little bit more self-seeking. It's saying, why would you disqualify someone from being your neighbor? Why would you disqualify someone from being, what's the line they could cross that you look and say, I no longer have to love you? What is the line they could cross? What is the viewpoint they could have? What is the thought they could share that would make you look and say, ah, you're disqualified. You're no longer my neighbor. You're no longer the person I'm supposed to walk with and love and that sort of a thing. You see, if, if you hang on with me for just a moment, I promise there's, there's a point to this message. Within this message, I want to take a moment though, and I think to get down to it, I want to look at a community that I believe embodied this so, so well. And we see this community in the book of Acts. It's the early church. They were a community that looked at the words of Jesus and they said, we have to take this serious. We have to choose to honor him and represent him well to the world around us. We need to love people. So what do we see happen in the book of Acts? Well, in Acts chapter 1, we end up seeing Jesus look to his disciples and he looks to them and he gives them a command. He gives them an order. He says, you need to wait in Jerusalem. You need to wait in Jerusalem and I will send my Holy Spirit to empower you so you can be witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, to the ends of the earth. And so the disciples look and they say, okay, we're supposed to wait. Easy command. And guess what? They did it. Good job, disciples. They actually got one right. So they go and they wait. And while they're waiting, we look and we end up getting to Acts chapter 2. And it ends up saying that, guess what? Jesus did what he said he would do. It says the Holy Spirit descends upon them like tons of fire. And they are received the Holy Spirit. They receive the Holy Spirit in this moment. It says that they step out into the city streets and they're speaking out in various tons and this sort of a thing. And then we end up seeing the Apostle Peter step up. The Apostle Peter step up. You see, in this moment, really quick, I want to speak to why this is so, so important. You see, the day of Pentecost, as we talk about it within Christian circles, is not just important for Christians, but it was also a Jewish festival. Now, what does that mean for the Jewish people? It means that they were ballooning the population of Jerusalem. It means that everybody was like, we got to go, and we got to celebrate. We got to be together. It would be like if the Seahawks win the Super Bowl, and the population of Seattle balloons, not just like there's traffic happening, but it's people wanting to be there and be stuck there. They're going, and they're being able to populate and congregate together. So Peter steps out. This isn't a low-traffic day. He steps out, empowered by the Holy Spirit. What does he do? He starts to preach the good news of Jesus to them. A few weeks prior, Peter steps out and denies Christ to about a 12-year-old girl. But empowered by the Holy Spirit, he steps up in front of thousands, and he starts to preach. He starts to speak. He starts to speak to the goodness of Jesus. And in this moment, we end up seeing 3,000 people saved. Can I just tell you, that would have been a crazy moment to witness. Because he's not preaching to people who are receptive. He's not, he's preaching to people that killed his Savior. He's preaching to the people who hated Jesus. The Jesus who is coming to change the status quo, who is coming to turn things on its head, coming to say, I have fulfilled it all, let's walk forward. He gets up with boldness and preaches and speaks of the glory of Jesus. And about 3,000 are saved. This is amazing. So we end up seeing in this moment the early church is kind of formed. It's ballooned. Talk about rapid growth for a church congregation. And so they go and they see this happen. And we end up seeing the early church described in Acts 2, 42 to 47. And I always love these verses. It says this, They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship and to the breaking of bread and to prayer. Everyone was filled with awe at the many wonders and signs, the miraculous things being performed by the apostles. All the believers were together and had everything in common. They sold property and possessions to give to anyone who had need. 
Every day they continued to meet together in the temple courts. They broke bread in their homes and ate together with glad and sincere hearts, praising God and enjoying the favor of all the people. And the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. You see, the church in this moment, what are they? They are unified, caring, and loving each other. And they are looking to Jesus. They're representing Christ to those around them. They're looking around and they're saying, we are a community who has been formed, and we are a community who serves. Well, it was put to the test pretty quick. Because how many of us know that when people are involved, stuff gets messed up? Stuff gets a little messy because we're a little messy. Because we don't always work well together. So we look at this moment for the early church, what takes place? We end up seeing that there are Jewish believers, and there are also Greek believers who have come to know Jesus, and they're starting to form this community together. And as we're reading through this, we end up reading at the beginning of Acts that some of the Greek men go to the apostles, and they end up saying, hey, we got a problem. Our widows who are supposed to be served by this community, they're being overlooked. They're not being served properly. They're not being cared for by the community in the way they're supposed to. They're being looked down upon. And so in this moment, the apostles look and they say, yeah, that's not right. This isn't okay. We're going to fix this. So they go and they appoint these people to be in positions called deacons. And primarily in this moment, they look and they appoint these, these different men to be deacons. And they look, and the majority, if you look through their names, they're Greek. So you have the Greek widows being overlooked. So they look and they say, hey, we're going to have some of these Greek men help make sure you're not overlooked anymore. And within this community of deacons and this sort of a thing who are serving the people, we end up seeing that one of them, his name is Stephen. You see, Stephen was a man, it says, who was full of the Spirit, who was full of the Holy Spirit, who was wanting to honor Christ, who was wanting to serve the people, who was wanting to represent Christ. And so what does Stephen do? Well, you see, Stephen goes and he serves the people, the chosen community. He serves the people in the church community. But then we start to read that Stephen looked and he said, there's more to this. So he goes out into the streets. He goes out into Jerusalem. And he starts to serve the people at large. He's seeing, you're seeing miraculous signs and wonders take place. You're seeing him love the people who you would think would hate him. And people are coming to know Jesus. A great moment. An awesome thing. But in this moment, Stephen, as he's ministering, guess what? There are still some Jewish leaders and authorities don't quite like what's happening. So they look and they say, we got to make a statement. We tried to make a statement before with Jesus. We're going to make another statement. So they look and what do they do? They go and they arrest Stephen. They take Stephen and they actually look and guess what? He had nothing they could accuse him of other than the Jesus that they did not love. So they look and they start to bring up false accusation and they put him into a trial and during that trial, guess what Stephen could have done? Stephen could have looked and he could say, I don't believe in Jesus, I deny it all, it was all fake, it's okay, and I'll testify to it. He could have done that, he could have saved his life. But what's he do instead? He stands up, and he's given a moment to testify, and he starts to testify to the goodness of Jesus that is undeniable in his life. He looks and he says, what is the most loving thing I could do to these people who hate me in this moment? It is to show them that Jesus is worth not backing down for. And that they need to see the light of this. So he stands up, he preaches this message, and it ends up saying ultimately what happens to Stephen, he becomes the first Christian martyr. He ends up being killed for his faith. He ends up being killed for his faith. A man who was innocent, who had done no wrong, who was just trying to care and love people. Somebody who was out serving people that would be looked at as the least of these within their community. And they kill him. So I have to then bring this up. What did the community do in response? What did the church do in response? What did the early church at its conception do? They served the community. 
they served the people who killed their friend. They still loved the people who killed their friend. They looked and they said that Jesus meant what he said and they had to take it serious. He looks, the church looks, and loves the community. You see, the early church took this so serious. There's different people that we can look at. You look at Stephen, obviously what happened to him? He died loving the community. We look and we see Peter. The apostle Peter, this one who had that great moment where he preaches to 3,000, has kind of this like whatever rock star moment of like, oh my gosh, people are coming. Oh Jesus, this is amazing. What happens to him? A guy who could have fled, who probably the ability to, what's he do? He died loving the people. He died representing Jesus in great ways. We look throughout scripture, we see Paul, what happened to him? He died loving the people. Quick backstory on Paul. Such a crazy story. Stephen, the first martyr, Paul stands by in approval of his death. He says that he stands and he watches as he's killed. And he stands there in approval saying this was the right thing. Why? Because he was a zealous Jewish man who cared about preserving what was happening. And he looked and he had a hatred towards Jesus. He had a hatred towards the church community. So he ends up standing there in approval, but then Jesus meets him in a radical way. He meets him in a radical way. He ends up being saved. And then Paul launches out one of the greatest missions efforts ever to save the known world. And in one of his letters, as he's reflecting upon the great things that Jesus has done in his life, the forgiveness that Jesus has awarded to him, that the community received, can I tell you, Paul ended up being friends with people in the church of Jerusalem, people who were friends of Stephen's, people who had seen him and knew that he stood there in approval of their friend's death. They looked and said, if Jesus can forgive me, he can forgive you. And if you mean what you say, if you truly are following Christ, they looked and said, then we're going to send you to do it. Represent him well. But Paul writes in Romans, he's writing to the church in Rome, and he ends up saying, I eagerly await to visit you. I eagerly await to visit you. I eagerly await the opportunity to be present with you. Because he knew they were a church that was struggling, that was being persecuted, that was being hurt. And what does Paul do? He does get to visit. But what is his visit for? His visit is ultimately for his death. That he gets to go to Rome, and he dies representing Christ boldly. And what does he do it for? Loving the people. Ultimately, we look and we see what happened to Jesus. Jesus, our Savior, our example. The one that as Christians were called little Christs. The one who is our model and example. What did he do? He died loving people. He showed up into the world and he said, I love you so much, I will die for you. And what did humanity do in return? Humanity looked and said, we're going to turn our back on you. We're going to hate you and we're going to kill you. But he died loving the people. He loved them so much. He loved them so much that in Luke 23, 34, it says that Jesus said, Father, forgive them for they know not what they are doing. He looks and he says, Father, they're in the dark. They haven't seen the light. But I know if I do this, they'll receive the light. Father, forgive them for they know not what they're doing. He looks and he says, they're worth it. You see, this call to a furious love of community, it's not one of ease. It's not an easy thing. It's not an easy call. It's not an easy conviction to have. It's not one of just simple commitment where we just say, okay, I'm going to do better at this and walk out the door. No, it is one of radical realignment. It's a call to truly say, I will embody the call of Jesus on my life. 
I will embody the commands he has given me. And what is that? To love him and to love people. To love the people around me. To love the community around me. You see, as I was, I was preparing for this, I ended up sitting there and I ended up thinking at one moment, I was just like, okay, well, so what if we don't view it this way? What if we were to look and we were to say, no, if somebody hits me first, I get to hit them back. If the world insults me first, I can tear them down. What if we view it where we say, no, there is a justification to this? Well, I just have to tell you, I think we then have to ask ourselves the question, when did we say the greatest commandment didn't matter? When did we say it didn't matter? Because of different views and opinions and how people see you? When did we say it didn't matter? At what point did we look and we said, this no longer has to be the greatest one? This no longer has to be one that I care about and I want to honor and I want to represent Jesus through. When did we say it? Now I have to say, I think for most of us in this room, you're probably, you're probably sitting here and you're like, Caleb, I would not say it doesn't matter. And that's great. I think we're on the same page. And so how do we do this then? How do we love our community well? How do we love the people around us? How do we look and we say, even through the differences, I love you and I care for you? Well, I just have a couple quick things that I think are going to help us to be able to do so well. They're going to help us to be able to love our community even when it's difficult, even when it's not easy. How do we love our community? Well, the first thing I think we have to do is we have to be prepared. So we have to know the word. We have to know the word. We have to know the Bible. We have to know the scriptures. We have to know what God has to say. If we step out and we want to love somebody, but we don't know what we can speak to them so they can receive life and light and love in that moment, then we're not stepping out with a confidence. But when you know the word, you're able to speak truth and life to somebody. The Bible isn't just a passive thing for you to read, for you to enjoy. It's something for you to be and then consume and then give to others. Where you can read through the word and you can look at somebody and you can start to speak truth to them when maybe they've only heard lies. They can hear the fact that somebody does love them when they've felt like they have been unseen and unheard their entire life. They can hear that they aren't called to go through life alone, but that God created them for community and they were meant to be around each other and that you could look and you could say, join me in this. So the other reason why we should know the word is because it gives us the strength to stand upon. You see, there's moments where it gets hard and difficult to love people. And in 1 Peter 4.14, it says, if you are insulted because of the name of Christ, you are blessed for the spirit of glory and God rests upon you. Man, I love this. God made a fail-safe. He said, all right, I'm going to call you to step out. And if you step out and somebody receives life, that's a blessed thing because they're stepping into life. And he looks and he says, and if they look at you and they say, you are just an ignorant, dumb Christian, you are blessed. So if you step out and somebody doesn't receive, guess what? You are blessed because you are doing a good thing. Because God looks and he says, guess what? If they see you as foolish, it's not you that they see as foolish. It's me. So it's okay. And he looks and he says, I want to bless you through that. It gives us the strength to kind of just grit it out. You see, there's these moments that we look throughout life, whether it would be sports, whether it be through anything, where the preparation helps you to grit through things. You know, for me and the youth are going to laugh about this. I ran cross country. And when I ran cross country, one of the biggest things was to actually trust your training. That if your coach looked at you and they said, hey, on the third lap, you're just going to start to push even harder and you'll have enough energy for the last one, those sort of things. They looked and said, trust the training. We ought to be trained up. Because then when things get difficult, we can trust the training. We can trust the word that we have heard, the living word of God as it has been spoken to us from our Lord and we can step out in boldness. Know the word. 
The second thing we can do is we can reach out. We can reach out and actually do it. Reach out to people around us. You see, I want you to think about that kindergartner. That kindergartner who shows up and they get in the car and they look and they say, Mom and Dad, I made a friend. You know how that happened? Somebody reached out. Somebody out on the playground looked and they said, Hey, we need another one for kickball. You want to play? And that kid in their head's like, I don't even play kickball, but I'm going to go. I got an invitation. I'm going to step out. Why? Because I need that. I need that community. Hey, you want to play flyers up? Hey, you want to go on the swings? You want to go on the monkey bars? You want to go and play on the slide with us? Hey, you want to eat lunch with us? They're reaching out and people are able to receive when they're reached out to. Stephen, he was reaching out. He went out into the city, into Jerusalem, and he said, I'm going to love these people. I'm going to reach out. Paul, he was reaching out. He said, I'm going to go and I'm going to visit you. He didn't care about how it was received back. He just knew what he was called to do. He knew he was called to reach out, so he was going to. And if they received it or not, he knew he was honoring the Lord. He knew he was representing him well. We have to reach out. The third thing is this. We have to lift up. We have to lift up. How do we love our community? Well, we lift our community up. We lift our community up in our words. Man, may Christians be ones that aren't trying to knock the legs out of everybody. There's enough people doing that. There's enough people tearing people down. Can we be lifting up in our words, building somebody back up? A lot of people, it's easy for them to remember how many people have torn them down in their lives. What if you're the first voice that looked and said they had worth and they had value and they were known and they were loved and they were cared for and that somebody wanted to see them? Lift people up. And the other way we do it, we lift up through prayer. See, here at BCA, and I think any church you go to, we believe that prayer is powerful. We believe in a God who is relational, who cares about us speaking to him and talking to him. And so we need to pray, believing that prayer is going to cause breakthrough for people. For our community, you see problems within a community, pray for it. And not pray for it like, Lord, get rid of them. No, pray for it like, God, may you meet them. Pray for them, lift them up. Tonight, 6 p.m. here at the church. In the activity center, we're having a prayer meeting. We're having an opportunity to pray. If you have the time, if it fits your schedule, whatever it may be, I just encourage, be here. Let's pray. Let's lift up our community. And let's believe that Everett can be shifted. People can be saved through the power of prayer. Let's lift people up. On the second Wednesday of June, we have our United Night, a night of worship and prayer. Be here. Mark your calendar. Set aside the time. And let's pray to see God do amazing things. Let's lift, let's lift people up. Now, I will say there's a caveat with this one because oftentimes we end up looking and we think, okay, I need to pray for people. And there's some people, you can think of some people who are a little easier to pray for. You can think of the person, you're like, man, I have that friend. I love them. They're great. We just always, not, we just like, we hit it off. We're great. We do well together, but they don't know Jesus. I'm going to pray for them to know Jesus. That's awesome. That's a good thing. But can I just tell you the words of Jesus in Matthew 5, 44, they expand it. Because guess what? He knows the things we're going to struggle with. He says, but I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. He goes to the farthest thing. He's not just saying, hey, pray for the person that insults you. He's like, persecutes you. It catches everything before that. Pray for the person that thinks your views are silly. Pray for the person who thinks that your Jesus is not influential. Pray for the person who's mocked you in the last couple of years and you don't ever want to see again. Pray for the person that you've never met, but if you did, you feel like you would just have hatred rise up. Pray for them. Why? Because Jesus calls us to. There isn't an excuse for them not to be our neighbor. 
Pray for them. Lift them up. Pray that God would do mighty things. The fourth thing, this is a little bit metaphorical, but I think it sums this up pretty well. So we need to take the punch. We need to take the punch. There's times within our world where we just feel like the world keeps wanting to hit us while we're down. And can I just tell you, there's times that we have to look and we have to be willing to say, I'm not going to get even. I'm not going to keep my record of wrong. I'm not going to look for my chance to jab back. That person insulted me. I'm about to destroy everything about them. That can't be how we look. Sometimes what do we do? We take the punch. We take the punch. We take that hit and we turn and we just keep going forward saying, hey, I'm going to love you through this. Because our love can't be conditional. The moment it is, the moment that it looks and somebody says, well, I pushed them just enough, now they won't love me. We need to represent Christ through the pain, through those moments. We need to take the punch. You see, if I was to sum up this message in one sentence for you to walk out of here with, it would just be this. It would be that loving our community isn't always easy, but it's what we are called to do. It's not always easy. More times than not, it's not easy. Loving your spouse is not always easy. Loving your kids is not always easy. Loving your parents is not always easy. Loving your best friend is not always easy. So it is going to definitely not always be easy to love the stranger next to you. But it's what we're called to do. It's what God calls us to. You see, speaking to this idea of how it's not easy, this idea of how we have to take the punch sometimes, can I just remind you something that we need to take the punch because Jesus took the cross. Can I just remind you something about our Savior? He looked at the world around him and he loved them, he loves us, and he looked and he went to the cross and he died. And he gave his life. Can I just tell you, this is something I've been saying to myself this week and I hope potentially challenges you. May I not be so self-righteous that my Jesus who died is not worth me taking a punch from culture about. May I not be so full of who I think I am and how great of who I think I am that if somebody disagrees with me, they now don't deserve my love. Jesus died with humanity's backs turned. And he said, why? It's worth it. Because they need it. They need it. Today, BCA, I just want to challenge you with something. I want to challenge you to leave this place with a heart to see people as people with need, not people with ideas that have to change people with needs that need to be met, people with things that have to be ministered to and talked to, I want to encourage you to invite them to church. When you got that random person that you see and you've thought before, maybe I would invite them, maybe I would encourage them, invite them to community why they need it. Invite them to church. Invite them to the dinner table. Invite them to a meal. What an amazing place. Gathered around a meal with somebody. A lot of us can probably think of a time that we were invited to have a meal with somebody and you're like, that's a big deal. Invite someone to have a meal with you. Invite them to community. Pray for them and care for them. And and can I just tell you this? If they have a harsh word for you because of the light of Jesus, don't view it as abnormal. It's a lot more normal than you think. If you were to encounter somebody who's sitting, for some of you, you can think of your kids, who's been in a dark room for a long time. They've been in that dark room and you then turn on the light. Guess what? There's a reaction. Usually it's a bit of a jump. It's a little bit like, I turn that off. I don't want to see that. I don't want to go do that. I don't want to acknowledge that. They look, turn on the light. It's shocking. 
So when you show up to somebody who we believe and we see in Scripture has been walking in the darkness without the light of Christ, and you show up and you show them the light of Jesus, it's going to be a bit shocking. There's going to probably be a bit of an adverse reaction. But you know what you need to do? Keep showing them the light. Help them to see that it's the way they need to go. To see that there's a benefit to it. They don't need to just sit in the dark. And be okay with the fact that when they do it, I imagine this, when you wake somebody up out of the dark, sometimes they throw a hand and they're like, what's going on? They might catch your chin. That's okay. Why? Because they need the light. They need to see Jesus. They need to see Christ. And my final thing I want to encourage you, if you are able, if you want to stand with us, I'm going to pray for us in a moment. We're going to worship, but... I started preparing for this message about a month and a half ago. We sat down, we started talking through things, and I instantly had a statement come to my mind. And I want to close with it, and I want to have it be a prayer for our community. And it's simple, it's just this. May we be a people that fight for our city, not against our city. BCA, may we be a people that fight for our city, that fight for the people around us, that don't look at the people around us and see them as just a problem in the way, but a person with need, a mission field that we are called to. We aren't called just to move the problems. We're called to go help the people. And so my call is for us to be a community that would fight for the city, for the people, for the community around us. Not just trying to beat them down, but trying to lift them up. Help show them the light. They're in the dark. They're going to be in the dark then, unless you show them the light. We're the hands and feet of Jesus. May we go forth in boldness. So with that, I just want to pray. We're going to respond in worship. And so, Lord Jesus, we just thank you for today. We thank you, God, for the fact that you are light, that you are life, that you are good, and that, God, we might not have chosen to be in the area we are, but you have placed us here with a purpose. So, Lord, we just ask that we be able to take your word serious, that we love our community well, even when it isn't easy, even when they disagree, even when we think things are going foolishly and all of this stuff. May we love the people, God, and may we stand in boldness against the enemy. Lord, we thank you today that you've called us to fight for our city, for the people. You want to see them saved, Jesus. So may we step out in boldness to see it happen. Right now as we're praying, just for some of you, I think you might have a name on your mind. A person that you're like, I should be reaching out, I should be lifting up, I should be calling, and I should be finding out if they need community and that sort of a thing. And there's the easy ones that might come to mind, and that's great. But I encourage you to start thinking of some names of some people that within the community, within our area, within this region, that sort of a thing that you need to start praying for. Maybe some friends, some people you need to start reaching out to so that you can be the light to them. Jesus, give us the strength. Give us the ability. We thank you for what you're doing. Lord, may we fight for the people. May they see the light. God, we are so excited to see people step into new life with you, Jesus. In your name.